So we are beginning our look at the parables of Jesus. So we're going to start in the middle, and we'll get back to verse 1 next week. Because this week we want to answer the question, why did Jesus speak in parables? So to kind of begin our look at this, I want to start with uh, a story. And many of you have heard stories like this. It's been told countless times. A king is away from his kingdom. His kingdom is taken over by a usurper. The usurper puts a powerful army in charge of this country. And the citizens are oppressed. The citizens are harassed. But the king begins sending spies and military commanders under the cover of looking just like everybody else. He, they, they begin infiltrating the kingdom. And to make sure that the usurper king doesn't know what's going on, they speak in code. They speak in ways that are veiled so that if anybody overheard them, they'd go, oh, they're just talking about this. When in actuality, they're talking about the king returning and reclaiming his kingdom. Now imagine the king himself coming to his kingdom. He shows up dressed like a commoner, dressed like every other person. He shows up. How encouraged would those citizens be to not only hear that the king is coming, but that the king is here telling you, I'm coming. I'm going to retake my kingdom. See, this is the place where we find ourselves in the story. In this story with Jesus. See, the Old Testament recounts all of the spies entering into this kingdom that the usurper, the devil, has taken. The prophets came and sometimes what they said was clear. Other times, it was incredibly unclear. So now we see the king has come. The king has come. He has entered his kingdom under the disguise of just being a normal human being when in actuality he is God in flesh. And he goes around and he, he tells his people about the coming kingdom. And for some reason, he speaks in code. He speaks in ways that are hard to understand. And so today, we find out from the king himself why he speaks in code. And so we're going to look at this today so that when we get into the parables starting next week, we've got seven in a row we're going to be looking at so we can understand the purpose behind the parables. Because if we get the parables wrong, we're going to get the interpretation wrong, which means we're going to miss the point that the king wants us to get. So the big question is, why did Jesus speak in parables? And the short answer is, Jesus spoke in parables to conceal the truth from those who won't submit, and to reveal the truth to those who will. See, the key is we have to understand, the key is Jesus. If your relationship with Jesus is where it's supposed to be, the parables are life-giving. If your relationship with Jesus is not where it's supposed to be, it's religious nonsense. It's a fable. It's a story. It's something else. So today we're going to look at verses 9 through 17. We're going to go a little out of order uh, because we want to answer these kind of and see how they all tie together. So bear with me. We will get all of these verses covered, but we are going to go a little out of order. So if you want to see what we're going to do, we're going to answer the question, why did he speak in parables? The first answer is going to be mercy. The second answer is going to be judgment. 
And then we're going to respond to those two things. So let's start in verse 10. The disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? So right there, they throw that word out there, parable. What is a parable? Well, a scholarly definition will say something like this. A surprising story or word picture drawn from the familiar to powerfully illustrate the unfamiliar. Okay, that's great. It's a good scholarly definition. But what does it mean actually? Well, this is one of those times where the word is a Greek word. The Greek word actually helps us. The Greek word para means beside. And then balo means to throw. And I love that. I love it when Greek words have an English word that helped me remember it, right? You throw a ball, right? So balo, right? So parabalo, to throw alongside. So this picture is that Jesus is taking a story and throwing it alongside a truth so that we can see the truth. Now we've seen these in the Bible, haven't we? With David. Remember David, the king? He had a a little adulterous affair with Bathsheba. And then to try to cover it up, he brings Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, home. Uriah is a good man. And so David, has to, David ends up deciding to kill him, murder him. So Samuel, the prophet, goes to David, and instead of going, you adulterer, you murderer, he uses the wisdom of going, I'm going to tell you a story. And he tells him a story. And David gets incensed, and he says, who would do such a thing? And Samuel goes, actually, you are that man. You are the one who has done that. And it pulls David's guard down, and it, it, it makes it so David responds correctly. So our response to these parables is key. We have to make sure we respond correctly. So some more stuff on parables. There are 39 parables by Jesus. And I would say the 40th parable is probably his life. One, ver one parable is one verse long in Luke 5. One parable is 21 verses long, the prodigal sons in Luke chapter 15. Some of these parables don't translate into other gospels, but all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, contain parables. John has zero parables. The reason for this is that John records Jesus' teachings to the disciples. And as we'll see in this passage, parables are a way to cover up what he is teaching to the crowds so that the disciples get it, but the crowds don't. John doesn't recount any of those. He only deals with the ones for the disciples. These parables are not about portraying a moral truth. They are not fables. These are not sermon illustrations. They are not metaphors or similes or word pictures only. Parables are unique and Jesus only uses them when he's speaking to large crowds of people that are his disciples and those that are not. Some of the pictures we see in the parables, sowers, threshing floors, vines and vineyards, sheep, shepherds, a woman in her house, a wedding scene, a marriage banquet, family estates, two men building houses, a traveler on the road. They're common everyday things. But we face two problems when we come to the parables. The first one is people view them as fables. They look at them and say, these are just kind of like Aesop's fables. There's kind of a moral to it, and all we need to do is just get the moral and then apply it to our lives. And that is true that there are things that these parables require us to do. But that's not what they're there for. They're not there to be this sentimental kind of, oh, okay, and then we go do something and we miss 
the point, because ultimately the point of the parables is Jesus. One author writes, when we treat the parables as inspiring tales, we make them superficially insipid which what, with what ought to be spiritually incisive. I had to look those words up, by the way, incisive and insipid. Basically what he says is superficially blah when it should be spiritually tasty, should be spiritually makes you salivate. See, these parables are meant to make us long for the kingdom. They're, ma- they're meant to make us go, really, that's what's coming? They're not made to be something that we just apply as if it were some pithy fable. The second problem we have is we view these parables as illustrations. It's the way Jesus kind of teaches. It's just his style. You know, some preachers get up and they tell a joke to start things, and others tell stories, and others do this. Jesus used parables. Well, not exactly. Some people think that parables are taught, and this is what I remember being taught, was parables were meant to make the complex simple. And I think there is some of that. However, that's not what we see here, is it? What do the disciples ask? They say, why do you speak to them in parables? See, the crowd is not getting it. I mean, Jesus is getting up in front of these people and he's telling a story and he just drops the mic and walks off and the crowd's going, what? What, what just happened? Wait, we need to go do something. I, I, we have to do something. This guy seems to be important. And he just walks off. See, we missed this. Let's, let's do a little experiment together, okay? So we're going to read the parable of the sower. It's nine verses long. I'm going to read it to you. We're going to do an exercise in ignorance, okay? So you are all archaeologists now, and we're in North America, and you're digging in a cave, and you don't know where these people came from, and you find a piece of parchment, and you pull out the parchment, and this is what it says. It says, a sower went out to sow. As he sowed, some, feed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. So we hear that, and we go, oh yeah, totally. People are the soils, and, some, and we, we go right to the interpretation. But we miss the fact that if we read that by itself, we would have no clue what it says, right? We would read it, and we go, this seems like this is like an... I don't know, like a, a farmer's guidebook or something, you know? Or, or maybe we go, hey, it's, uh, you know, it's this story, it's a, it's a short story. Maybe it's a diary. Maybe it's a farmer who's like, hey, I tried all these different things and they didn't work. Maybe we look at it and go, ha, those people in the past are so dumb. Yeah, they built the pyramids, but wh- whatever, they can't plant? What's the deal? They're so stupid, right? So we approach this with the hindsight of the fact that Jesus is going to explain himself in just a minute. And we've had people teach us about these parables. We have to sit here for a second and realize that the disciples' question is warranted. He just told a parable. He didn't explain it. And the people are going, I need to go buy some seed? What? Wait, I need to avoid thorns? 
okay, what, what does this mean? And see, the disciples are going, we thought you were here to tell everybody about the kingdom. Why is it so hard? Why are you making this so hard on the people? And Jesus responds, and his response is illuminating. So the first thing he says is he says, starting in verse 11, he says that this is God's mercy. God's mercy. When he reveals the truth to people, he's saying it's because I'm having mercy on you. Look at verse 11. And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. In Scripture, a secret is a divine mystery. It's, a, it's, a, uh, it's, this, it's not really a mystery like a detective novel. It's not that you need a little bit more information or you need to be hyper-observant like Sherlock. Okay? It's none of that stuff. Instead, what we need is we need the insight of this Holy Spirit living in us. And obviously the Holy Spirit's not here yet in these disciples, but Jesus is going to explain himself to his disciples. There's no evidence that he explains himself where the crowd can hear him. Because see, what we need is we need the key to these parables. And the key is not, well, if you know in Palestine the soil is like this and it's not like that. No, the key is Jesus. Because the disciples are there feasting at Jesus' feet because of who Jesus is. And so when we see parables, we run to the fact that this is Jesus who is speaking. Jesus is saying, you have me. I am the mystery in person. Now these people over here, they haven't yet made a decision for me. They haven't recognized the basic point, which is that I'm God. You all have. And before you start patting yourself on the back, Jesus goes, I chose you, remember that. I picked you. Remember, I called you, not you choosing me. Verse 12, for to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. When, he's saying, when you that have me, you're just going to get more and more of me. Isn't that a sweet promise kind of just folded in right there? That if we have Christ, the promise is you have all that you're going to get. No, the promise is I'm going to continue giving you more of myself is what Jesus is promising. You don't just get a little bit of Jesus and good, you're done. You've been your Jesus inoculation. No, your Jesus continues to fill. He expands to fill all of your life. Now skip down to verse 16. He said, but blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. Jesus is not saying well, you know, you disciples are up here on the spiritual scale, so therefore you can see it. He's saying, I allowed you to see, therefore you can see. Their ears were blessed because he allowed them to hear. And really, the New Testament teaches this all the time. The way that people respond to Jesus is because they've begun the regeneration that the Holy Spirit does, not because they're some upper echelon of Christian. And praise be to God with that because none of us would match the upper echelon of the people around Jesus at this time. And the baptisms that we're going to do this afternoon, which you all should come to, are going to show that. It's the regeneration. Before any of the people that are being baptized called out to the Lord, the Lord reached out and started regenerating them. What does it say in Ephesians 1? You were dead in your trespasses, but the Lord made you alive. The quickening work of the Holy Spirit is what opens hearts. It's what makes us regenerate. So now there is a warning here, and we see it in verses 11 and 12. I left a little piece out of each verse. There's a warning, and the warning Jesus makes is, this is a limited time opportunity. This is not a forever, ever, ever opportunity. 
Look at verse 11. But to them it has not been given. Verse 12. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now, if we're honest, these are hard verses to read. They're hard. We can't explain these away and just ignore them. But what we need to, be, what we need to allow to have happen in this verse is we need to let God be God. The God of Jesus and of the Bible writers is not surprised by the response of anyone. He's not a bad sower who has bad farming techniques and, oh well, I got some on the, the rocky ground and, oh well, it's in the thorns. No, God is sovereign, but God is also merciful. But we need to recognize that His mercy only lasts for a time in this life. And so if you are someone who has heard this call on your life over and over and over again, there is a point where he's going to be, I've given you all that you need. You need to respond. Look at verse 19. I know it's for next week's sermon, but this is what it says. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, because remember, understanding comes from the Holy Spirit working in your heart. You're not letting it work. The evil one then comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. See, this is, this is the fact of the matter, is that the more we push against the Lord and not submit to His rightful ownership, we're not asking Him anywhere, we're not confessing Him, we are simply submitting to the fact that we are His, and we are leaving the rebellion and joining the kingdom, there is a point at which that's going to be, you're going to be too hard. I mean, there's this principle in life, the more truth one has, the more one can learn. You know, as a football coach, I can explain all sorts of crazy things like trap blocks and down blocks and blitz pickups, all sorts of line play. But if the person has no idea what a scrimmage line is or even what a football is, there's no way to have the conversation. Just like some of the shows that my wife watches, you know, someone talking about a sauce reduction. If you don't know how to boil water, you're not going to be able to do a sauce reduction. But a professional football player or a coach or a chef will grab that. And this is the thing. You cannot get to the depths of Christianity if you don't start with the very first principle, which is Jesus Christ is God and Lord of your life. Whether you like it or not, He is God. Are you going to submit to Him or are you going to push against it? And what these verses are saying is your pushing against it is going to at some point be that it's done. Your, t your opportunity was done. If a man denies this, if a woman denies this, he can watch every single miracle, hear every single parable, read all the finest books, listen to amazing sermons, but if you don't start with the simple fact, the number one thing, the thing that makes us believers that Jesus is your God and King, then there doesn't matter how great those things are that you hear. Jesus will reveal himself to everyone, and he has revealed himself to everyone, but he will not stand for being rebuffed forever. Think about where Jesus is at in the book of Matthew right now. Okay, we're 13 chapters in. What has Jesus been doing? He's been teaching plainly to the people. He's been doing miracles. He's been speaking with authority. He has shown the Pharisees where they get it wrong in their interpretation. He's re-energized re the, the, the Bible, like what it what actually says. The Pharisees had all this muddled around it, and Jesus cuts right through it. 
and yet they still go, no, I don't think he's for me. So Jesus at this point says, all right, I'm going to change the way I teach. And this is actually a form of judgment. This is a form of judgment on them. So the next thing we see is that this concealing of the truth is evidence of God's judgment on those who won't listen. Look at verse 13. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Now lest someone should think that this is God delighting in this, we know that the God of the Bible does not delight in a single soul being sent to hell. He does not delight in it. But instead, this is an act of mercy. And I know this is hard for us to grasp. But the thing about it is, what makes hell hellish is the fact that when we are in hell, we are separated from God. And when we are separated from God, we look back on this finite life and we see the billions of ways that God speaks to us. The thousands and thousands of times that he made it so clear. And yet we went, nope, stiff arm, hard pass, not going to do it. So in his mercy, God at some point will go, I'm going to stop telling you about me so that hell will not be as torturous as it could have been. Do you see how this is a merciful God? He wants each of our hearts devoted to him. So much so, and he cares for us so much that even in our rebellion against him and fighting willfully against him, he says, I won't go too far because it won't be that much worse for you. What a God. How how gracious of a God is that? And that's the God you're stiff-arming. That's the God that you're saying, I don't want anything to do with. One who says, I will take my enemies and I will make their punishment less because I love them. What a great God. Why? Why are we stiff-arming him? Why is our world fighting against this God? I would say they don't know him. And that's on us. We'll get to that in a minute. I'm sorry, I'm skipping ahead. Augustine once wrote, a man who looks at beautiful writing in a foreign tongue can admire the calligraphy, the art, but cannot appreciate the meaning. Just so an unbeliever can admire Jesus' teachings but cannot grasp the essential meaning. He hears, but he does not hear. So why do we have parables? Why does Jesus speak in parables? There are three things. One, unbelief. They're not willing to see. Now notice it doesn't say they're not able to see. This is not like if we had somebody who was born blind and we go, I hold up a picture, you couldn't see it, bummer. That's awful. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. These are people who are willingly going, I see that, I'm going to close my eyes and not look. I hear that and I've heard it and I've heard it and I've heard it, I'm not going to listen. So Jesus says, I'm going to talk in parables. The second thing is this is judgment. We saw this in the second half of verse 13. When they respond willfully to God and they say, I choose to not believe in you, there is judgment. And this is a picture of the judgment that will come after death. An unwilling embrace of Jesus leads to damnation. And he's saying, right now, I am pushing you out of the people that are getting what's going on. And then finally, mercy. The parables are merciful. We'll get into this in a little bit, but notice that Jesus says, listen, listen up. He's speaking these parables, and the parables are meant to do one of two things. The followers of Christ are to go, oh, okay, I get it. And those who don't follow Christ are to go, I don't get it. The one who just said it is standing right in front of you, 
Ask him. This isn't Jesus going, okay, disciples, I'll take your questions. He takes questions all the way through. Why is no one asking him? So there's mercy there. Jesus is not walling them off fully yet. Spurgeon writes this, it's an awful thing when God gives people up to spiritual blindness and dullness and hardness, but it does happen. If you hear the word and refuse to receive it, you do in that extent harden your heart. If you continue to do so, you will by degrees lose the capacity for understanding the word. Many of people are not aware of the solemn responsibility of hearing the gospel and of the terrible peril of having our ears made dull and our hearts made hard. Preachers are responsible for preaching faithfully, but we are equally responsible for hearing what is preached faithfully. They may have come to Jesus even as his disciples did and asked questions. He would have answered them. He would have explained the truth. We should all tremble for those who hear the word, do not receive it, and yet remain content in their lives. This is the worst state of all to be in. Jesus' disciples would have been shocked by this. And if we're honest, we're shocked. The parable simultaneously reveals and hides. See, the parables divide people into two groups. This should sound familiar. I preached on this a couple weeks ago. Chapter 12, verse 30 says, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever is not with me gathers. Whoever, sorry, I'll read it. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Two groups. The parables divide. And this is where we're at. So like that initial story, the king is going to come and retake his land. He's going to come and retake it. You can either get ready for the king, prepare the rebellion against the, un, un, the usurper, the unofficial king, or you can continue to work for that king. There's only two sides. There's no neutral ground here. And these parables do that. You're either getting the parables or you're not getting the parables. And if you're not getting the parables, it's to say, hey, I'm not in, I'm not in the kingdom. I'm not in there where I need to be. Jesus taught parables to explain truths to his disciples and to keep truths from the crowds. So why would Jesus do this? Well, it's ultimately all about our response. Our response dictates whether or not we're in the kingdom. This is a fulfillment of prophecy. Look at verse 14. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. This is from Isaiah chapter 6. This is the very famous passage where Isaiah goes, Woe is me! And the Lord comes down and uses a coal to cleanse his lips. And then he goes, Who will go? And Isaiah goes, Here I am, send me. This is the extension of that passage. He says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. With their ears they can barely hear, their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn. I would heal them. That word turn is the word repent. It means repent. Notice that Isaiah's passage, while starting off incredibly negative, they don't hear, they don't see, they're choosing the wrong way. At the end, it ends with hope. But if they turn, but if they turn, I would heal them. But if they turn, we need to see that there is no hope for anyone outside of Jesus Christ. And these parables, instead of lighting up, they become closed doors. Instead of windows that let in light, they become closed doors that you can't see through. It's like a stained glass window at a church. If you've ever been to a church that's all stained glass, if you're outside on a sunny day and you look at it, you can kind of make out the shapes. 
but it's dark to you. But when you go inside, oh man, does it pop. When that sun shines through, there's a, there's a cathedral in, in Paris called Saint-Chapelle. It was the king's cathedral. It's about the size of this room, but it's three stories of all stained glass. And the sun rises on one side and it sets on the other. And I've heard people say that when the sun comes through at dawn or as it's setting, that room is so bright you would think you were in heaven. But if you're outside and you're looking at it, it is black. You can't see what it is. This is what the parables do. If you're in Christ and you're on the inside, you see the colors for what they are. If you're on the outside, it looks just like any other tinted windows. So what do we do with this? Well, we need to respond. The first response is gratitude. Look at verse 17. For truly I say to you, many prophets and, prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it. To hear what you hear and did not hear it. See, Jesus, every single time he teaches, he wants a response. The response to what he has taught tells us where we are. If the response was, cool story, bro, that tells us a lot. If the response is, oh my goodness, that Jesus is amazing. Oh my goodness, I need more of this. I need more of that. I see things more clearly then guess what? We're where we need to be. You know, the, the, the parables are kind of, um, kind of have a reflective quality, kind of like a mirror. How we read them reveals who we are. In fact, as we read them, they're reading us. Parables work on us as we work on them. Sometimes the parables are going to make us squeamish, and we're going to be like, I don't want to look in the mirror. I don't want to look in the mirror. But here's the rub. If you are in Christ, you can't help but want to see what's in that parable. Even if it means that you're seeing yourself and going, I do not look anything like Christ. As a matter of fact, I look the opposite of Christ. So these parables invite us in. They invite interpretation. Now, if we return to the parable of the sower that we read a minute ago, what if I said to you as we were doing our archaeologist's work that the cave was a place where a really, really rich person hid a map in a story. Now, when that piece of parchment comes out and you're reading this parable of the sower, all of a sudden, those words on the page now become, what, I could, fi I could find some money from this? You're going to read it so much closer. We would pour over it. This is why the disciples want to know. They're going, you revealed it to us, it was great, why aren't you revealing it to others? Because they're going, we know who you are. Now, granted, their view of Jesus isn't quite perfect yet. They don't get it till after the resurrection. But at this point, they're seeing how valuable the one speaking is. And so why wouldn't they want that to share with others? Peter says this very particularly in John chapter 6. When a bunch of, bunch of, bunch of the followers of Jesus leave. Simon says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. See, we are to see that if you're here today and you, are, you get it, and Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, what a privilege you have. Because remember, you didn't save yourself. The Lord reached down and grabbed you, pulled you in. Some of you did it kicking and screaming, amen? But he grabbed you and he pulled you in. 
Think about those people in the Old Testament that came before us that longed to see. Sometimes it's think, we like to think, man, if I was in the Old Testament, and if only if God would come down and talk to me, it would make it so much easier to believe. No, they were looking forward to what we have. They wanted to see the Messiah having had come. Abraham and Sarah, Deborah, David, Amos, Esther, all of them wanted to see what the Messiah had done. We have that. We spend time reading about that. We talk about it every Sunday. They longed for that, and yet we have been given that privilege, not because of anything we have done. So this should lead us to our first response, gratitude. Gratitude. Matthew is drilling into his disciples this idea of privilege. He says, you have been privileged. God has come in and said, you don't deserve this, but I'm giving it to you anyways. Where's the amazing grace and wonder and gratitude for what you've seen? Spurgeon said, under the gospel, you are made to know what the greatest and best of men under the law could not discover. We can see it more clearly. We should have gratitude. Now we may say, but wait, Pastor John, I, the, what, why doesn't God save everyone? Or, or why doesn't God save this person? Well, I'll tell you, we could spend a long time on those questions, but that's not what this passage is about. I'll show you what we should do in response to that here in a second. But first and foremost, we've got to, if we are in Christ and we are the disciples of Christ in this room, the first thing we should feel is gratitude. How could we not sing about this great God who reached down and grabbed us? Because remember, what does the Bible say? We are children of wrath, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. So let me ask you, what kind of gift does a child of wrath deserve at Christmas? I think there's probably a third list, right? The naughty list, the nice list, and then the children of wrath list. Children of wrath don't even deserve a lump of coal. Children of wrath deserve destruction for what they've done to the king. And yet that's what we were before he reached down and grabbed us. Look at what Romans 5.8. We were still sinners. Christ died for us. All we brought to the table were the sins that needed to be forgiven. This should lead us to where it led Paul. Look at what Paul writes in Romans. This is doxology. Doxology means to praise with words. Listen to this. Oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be the glory. Amen. And if you know the book of Romans, Paul's not even done yet. He just can't help himself. He said all of these really difficult things. Doctrine, theology, big heavy stuff. And he just goes, oh, praise God. Right in the middle. So our response should be, gratitude. Now the second response, once we've heard this and we have this gratitude, is to go and share it. Now you're going to go, wait a second, didn't you just say that there are people out there that aren't going to get it? They've been given their chances and their chances are up and why go tell them? And the answer is, you're not God and you don't know when they're done. And Jesus even what Jesus knew, he still gave every single person an opportunity. Let me show you in the passage. Verse 9. We didn't forget about verse 9. He who has ears, let him hear. English doesn't really get the emphasis there. Jesus is saying, y'all need to listen up. This is for all of you. Listen. So Jesus is saying, you need to listen. Listen. 
And it's not just the disciples he's saying this to. Now we're going to skip ahead to verse 51 of chapter 13. Jesus has just finished all the parables, and he asks the disciples, he says, have you understood all these things? And they respond, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe, so therefore means because of what you just said and what I just said, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure, out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So first thing they say is they say, yes, we don't know how. It's just your grace that you've let us understand this. But then look at this. It says, every scribe who's been trained in the kingdom, where did the scribes come into this? What he's saying is that the scribes were the people, the Pharisees taught, the scribes wrote it down, and they passed it out. So Jesus is saying, you all have been trained now. Now it's your job to go and pass it out. Old treasures, new treasures, out of the abundance of the treasure you've been given. Okay, so you're like, all right, that kind of, we'll go one more place. Matthew 28, verse 19. Jesus has finished his entirety of all the things he's done on earth in the book of Matthew. These are his final words. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the second thing we are called to do is give them the gospel. We need to go give them the gospel. This God that is so patient, so gracious, so merciful, the adjectives could go on for days, is waiting for us. I don't know why he uses us, but he chooses to use us to go and share the news. The king, the rightful owner of this country, of this nation, the world, this continent, the entire thing is coming back. You are in rebellion against him by lining up with what this culture is doing. It's time to be on the winning side. It's time to be on this gracious king. He's so better than the best ruler that any of our nations have ever had. And so we are to go and we are to share this. So as we read these parables, as we look at these, let us be confident, first of all, that the Holy Spirit's going to help us understand them. Some of these are tough. I get to wrestle with these all week. It's hard work. But the Holy Spirit is good, and he will provide for us. But as we're up here, and I'm, as I'm speaking, and, and the Holy Spirit's given me things to share with you, and all you hear is religious gobbledygook and just this nonsense, you need to go, I'm missing something. Because if all you're hearing from me is I need to be good, and I need to try harder, and earn my way to heaven, you missed it. That's not the point. The point is you can't do it. You can't. None of you can. The best human on earth can't. Praise be to God that the perfect man who is God came and did it in our place. And when we are under his covering, the world begins to pop. It's like seeing in color for the first time. It's like being outside of the cathedral and going, well, look at those black windows, that's unique and then going inside and seeing the color. So today, if the stuff that we've been covering is something that makes no sense to you or it just seems like religious words thrown about, stop and go, Lord, is this true? Because the Holy Spirit is here and part of the way he's tugging on you are the words that are coming out of my mouth right now. Let the Lord do a work on you. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you for this rainy, blustery day outside. Lord, thank you that as stormy as the outside is, inside here, Lord, there is peace on offer. There is peace available for each and every one of us. Lord, for some of us, we've gotten our eyes off of you, and so we're, we're like Peter. He's looking at the storm around him, and we begin to sink. Lord, we need our eyes back on you. For some of us, we've never, ever put our eyes on you, and all we see is the storm, and our lives are swirling. Lord, I pray that you, you would grab our cheeks and pull our faces so that we would look at you. Help us to open our eyes. Help us to open our ears to hear what you have so graciously offered. Lord, you are a good God, and we love you in your name. Amen.